Peter wakes from a restless sleep with the first light of dawn. Even though he was exhausted from walking for two days to get to the lumber camp, sleep had escaped him. His legs were restless all night, itching from the heavy wool blanket. When he did slip towards sleep, he would wake with a start, worried he had overslept. He doesn't want to give the camp boss, notorious for using his fists to keep you in line, anything to complain about. This is Peter's first time at the lumber camp, and he can't mess up. God knows his family at home needs some money. Peter thinks of his father, the proud, hard-working, former railroad man, trying to bridge it over the Miramichi River. Peter wonders if he would be proud of him now, knowing he has a job as a lobby hog at camp, making money to bring home. Will his father recognize him when he gets back in the spring? Probably not. Peter's heart aches as he thinks about the devastating accident that left his father with less of his mind. Suddenly he hears a clang from the kitchen area and realizes Cook Ryan is already up. The camp boss told him that Cook was also new to camp, that he's not from around here. Irish, maybe. Peter jumps out of bed, now hurrying to gather water for Cook to brew coffee and make breakfast. Other workers are stirring in the beds now, and as soon as they get up, it's Peter's job to clean up the hay, make the beds, and sweep the floor. The air outside is fresh. Peter takes a deep breath, happy to be out of the log cabin where 15 other men share his quarters. The snow crunches under his boots, and he quickly walks around the cabin for fresh snow to fill his buckets. Peter's scrawny arms ache as he struggles with the heavy buckets back inside. Cook has already got the fire started and is cooking up a storm. The smell of beans and bacon makes Peter's mouth water and his stomach growls. Put a bit of snow in that pancake mix, boy, Cook says, motioning for Peter to stir the mix. As Cook bends down to put another log in the fire, his shirt rides up, and Peter sees a thick belt around his waist. He's never seen anything like it. A leather belt with a thick matching pouch. Cook turns around and notices Peter staring. What's that? asks Peter in his innocence. Cook quickly pulls down his shirt and winks at Peter. It's just that I keep my most precious belongings. Like my recipes. Peter startles as a heavy calloused hand falls on his shoulder. Recipes, huh? Growls the boss behind him. Cook quickly turns to stir the beans. The boss is eyeing Cook as if trying to figure something out. Peter feels uncomfortable in this unfamiliar tension and clears his throat. When the boss looks down at Peter, he has a feverish look in his eyes. What do you say, boy? Ready for your first lumberjack chow? The men wolf down their breakfast. There's no mealtime talking, and this camp is no exception. The 15-minute eating breaks are only to gain strength for the day's work ahead, not a time for socializing. When the men have finally cleared, Peter begins his chores. He works quickly, wanting to impress the boss. Dust from the hay beds flies around him as he shakes the thick blankets. Whatever extra hay he gathers from sweeping the floor, he puts in the boss mattress and a bit in Cook's too, as he seems nice. Cook is singing an unrecognizable tune when he cleans his pots and pans. Peter looks over to the boss. He's sitting at a table with his counting books, chewing his stubby, tattered nails. He looks restless and troubled. Maybe the men aren't working as hard as they should. Maybe they aren't making enough money.
Peter's stomach turns as the thought of leaving without pay at the end of his contract hits him. He needs the money. Peter keeps watching the boss while he works away. He tries to figure out his thinking as if to ease his worries. The boss keeps glancing at Cook. Maybe he's just upset with Cook for singing and trying to work. Boy, the boss suddenly rumbles. Get out and chop some wood. No less than a pile that reaches a roof. Get those stick arms of yours working. Peter hurries outside. He's used to chopping wood, but this axe is bigger and heavier than at home. But Peter is determined. He will be the fastest wood-chopping chap here. As the axe hits the first log, a sound is heard from the cabin. Was it someone yelling? Guess the boss eventually told Cook to stop singing. Peter keeps chopping, soon drenched in sweat and making his wool sweater itch around his neck. His throat is dry. He takes a fistful of snow and shoves it in his mouth, clenching his teeth against the cold. His arms shake from exhaustion. He doesn't want to stop, but surely it must be lunchtime by now. He decides he will return to the wood chopping as soon as he has had lunch. Peter leans the axe against the wall of the cabin. As he does, a cloud covers the sun and the wind suddenly picks up. Peter looks at the horizon, thick with dark clouds. A storm is brewing. The cabin is quiet, too quiet, as if all life has suddenly been sucked out of it. Did the boss and cook leave? As Peter enters the kitchen, he sees the boss hunched over. When he gets closer, he sees cook on the floor, lifeless. Peter feels a scream erupt from his thin lips as the boss looks back at him with those feverish eyes, hands behind his back. He got sick, the boss snarls. I don't know what came over him. He started convulsing and suddenly collapsed. We need to get him out of here, boy. Take him out into the snow and bury him before the others get back. Together, Peter and the boss drag the cook across the floor, but the door is thrown open as soon as Peter unlocks the deadbolt. The wind is howling outside. We need to hurry, the boss yells over the gusts. Peter doesn't like this. He knows it's dangerous to go outside in a raging snowstorm. People get lost and die just outside their doorstep. And to go outside in a snowstorm with a dead body? Sir, he's too heavy, Peter yells, regretting the words as soon as they've left his mouth. The boss lifts a thick arm and cracks Peter across his head, leaving ringing in his ears. And that's when he sees it. Cook's belt is missing. Peter starts to cry quietly. Something isn't right. Cook dying just like this? He knows it isn't right. Rushing to bury him in a raging snowstorm before the others get back. But Peter's just a lobbyhog. He's nobody. And he has to do what he's told. They're not far from the cabin when the boss decides this is the best they can do. We'll bury him properly when the storm is over, he snaps. Digging as deep as they can, they push the body into the hole and cover it with snow. Peter shivers as he shovels the last bit of snow over Cook's face, his eyes frozen in eternity. Back in the cabin, they are met by the dejected faces of the men who were forced back due to the storm. The boss tells Peter to dry his clothes and go to bed. He tells the man Cook suddenly got sick and died, and to leave the boy alone as he'd had a tough first day. Against his will, Peter falls into a deep sleep, 
the missing belt swimming in the back of his thoughts. It's dark when Peter wakes, and everyone's asleep in their beds. He can no longer hear the howling wind of the storm. He's thirsty, so he quietly climbs down his bunk and enters the kitchen. He bends down to take a scoopful of water from the bucket when something catches his eye and stops him cold. Something dark is on the floor, tucked away under the counter. His first thought is a giant rat, but the shadow doesn't move. He takes a spoon and pokes at it, but again, it doesn't move. He tentatively reaches in and pulls out the belt. Peter unbuttons the pouch and stifles a gasp when it opens. The pouch is full of money. Suddenly, a harrowing howl can be heard from outside the cabin. Peter runs back to his bed and throws himself under the blanket. The howling gets louder and louder. The men wake one by one. Peter covers his ears to the chilling sound. Wolves? Someone asks. No, says another. This ain't no sound of no wolf. The wolf don't whoop like that. The boss gets up, about to open the door and stops. Peter can see the boss' hands are shaking. Whatever it is, boss, it's better to leave it be, the oldest of the men says. The others agree as they get back into bed. No one sleeps that night. The following day, the mood is solemn, and no one mentions the whooping that was heard throughout the night. Peter is terrified to stay at camp with the boss. He nervously racks his brain for any reason to join the men in the woods. But the boss is not himself either, and eventually, they all decide to go to the woods together. As the men tread through deep snow, Peter feels like someone is watching them. A chill radiates up his spine. He notices the boss is also looking into the trees. He knows, Peter thinks. He knows the cook is following us and won't leave us in peace. Late that night, Peter takes the money belt from its hiding place under his mattress. He knows what he has to do. He hears the ghostly whooping rise outside. He silently climbs out of bed and gets dressed. The sounds get louder and wake the men just in time to see Peter slip out of the cabin door. The boss is quick on his feet, rushing to get dressed. Leave him, boss, men say. The boy's gone crazy from Cook's death. Let him go to a ghost. But the boss knows better. This isn't why the boy left. When everyone had gone to bed, the boss checked the treasure he had hidden under the counter. But it was gone. The boss pushes the men away to exit the cabin, ignoring the words from the men. Outside, the howling is even louder and seems to come from all directions. He swallows and hesitates. Seeing the boy amongst the trees, he sets off toward him and grabs the axe, leaning against the wall as he passes. Breathing heavily, Peter trudges through the snow. He hears the cabin door close behind him and knows the boss is coming. But Peter has already made up his mind. Nothing can stop him now. They need the money, his family, he do anything for them. The whooping gets louder and louder. It sounds like it's coming from right behind him now. He quickly turns, but nothing's there. Moving forward, fearing to look to his left, Peter still feels an ominous presence watching him. He can hear another breathing now, and boots tramping through the snow. He needs to move faster. It's all closing in on him, the whooping, the steps. He doesn't know what's worse, to be hunted by the living.
or the dead. From the Ghost Next Door podcast. Should we take that again? Yes. <laughs> this is Sally Tachich and Sarah Matson from the Ghost Next Door. story of the Dungarvan Hooper, the lumber camp cook who was murdered and is said to be haunting the woods outside Miramichi in the province of New Brunswick, Canada. We would like to welcome Dr. Sean McCarthy, a PhD in history and the co-founder of Character Matters Miramichi, a heritage-based entertainment company in New Brunswick. Hello, Sean. Sarah, Sally, lovely to be able to speak with you. Oh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> so it is interesting that when we were searching for ghost stories, New Brunswick came up quite a few times. Mm. There seem to have been quite a few legends and stories from New Brunswick. Why do you think this is? Well, I mean, that's a very good question. I think it has a lot to do with really kind of the the multicultural makeup of our province. And I think so very often we've seen... Uh, different cultural groups, you know, uh, tell their stories. And sometimes those stories have a great deal of complementality. Uh, some of the work that I'm doing currently with the Miramichi Historical Linkages Project really does illustrate the fact that um, there are a lot of folk stories that are very similar across cultures, or at the very least, uh, deal with similar themes and have similar lessons. And I think the rich oral tradition that we've had here across cultures in New Brunswick has allowed a lot of those uh, folk, folk stories and legends to endure. Mm, fascinating. So what would you say as a historian from that perspective has been the impact of these kinds of stories on this region? Well, in terms of impact, I suppose that I think they've really kind of allowed us to kind of hang on to who uh, aspects of those cultures there's uh, over time and maybe have provided a link that we can kind of uh, go back to now. So again, a lot of the research that we're doing currently is trying to get at more of that traditional knowledge and understand how those traditional lifestyles have varied somewhat from our own in both helpful ways and maybe unhelpful ways as well. I think a lot of those folk folk stories, again, kind of bring us back to nature uh, in a way that I don't know that uh, maybe our current ways of living and, and, and behaving really do. So they, again, I think they provide a really important link to our past and, of course, obviously provide a lot of entertainment value as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're curious, as someone who lives in uh, this region, is this a well-known ghost story around there? I think it is. Uh, I was a part in 2007 till about 2000 and, oh, probably 2017, 2018. Uh, we had a traveling show, uh, a theater production on the Dungarvan Hooper uh, and was very popular. It was probably one of the most well-attended shows of the, of the theater company that I was working with at the time, uh, the Miramichi Heritage Players. Uh, I think we've did, we did the show if not 20 times, almost 20 times in various places all, all throughout the region. And again, was very well received. So I think it's it's a well-known story. I think also uh, it's 
it's a really variable story. Mm. Uh, obviously, the the version that you're speaking about, uh, the version that was commemorated in Michael Whelan's 1912 poem um, about, again, the murder of the cook, the, the hooping ghost, so on and so forth, is probably the best known. But of course, further upriver, there are different versions of the story. He, uh, and different communities have their different variations, some of which are wildly different uh, from the uh, kind of the more standard version that you often hear, uh, but I think provide even greater richness in that way. Uh, and uh, again, uh, allow for some really interesting historical uh, research as well. Yeah. Do you mind sharing a bit about these other versions of this story that you know about? Oh, not at all. Uh, happy to do so. Uh, Upriver, there is... Uh, as I say, kind of a different version that the Hooper is not so much a ghost. The Hooper is, in fact, uh, a man, uh, a man who unfortunately became lost in the woods and suffered, I guess, uh, some sort of a, uh, a breakdown and basically became feral. Um, this story is, again, uh, somewhat rooted in, in, in history. At least you've got some dates that sort of go along uh, with it. Um, the first appearance of this gentleman uh, apparently took place in about 1869 uh, when he attacked two men uh, at Clearwater Brook, uh, an upriver tributary of the Southwest Miramichi. These two men, George Scott and Bill Carson, uh, were, were seriously injured uh, after an altercation uh, with, with an assailant. Now, both men had different versions of the events. Um, I believe... You've, Scott thought that it was in fact a bear, uh, but uh, Bill Carson thought that it was in fact a man, but had been dressed in uh, in skins. Carson lost his coat in the in, in the struggle, uh, and of course the two men obviously uh, escaped with their lives. And it wasn't it wasn't until some time later that they were able to track their assailant back to a cave uh, that was filled with bones. Uh, and the remnants of Bill Carson's coat were found there. Now, this attacker was uh, was not was not seen again in the area for some time, and it wasn't until about twenty years later, in eighteen eighty nine, uh, that it had said that he began to become resident uh, in the Dungarvan region. Uh, he broke into camps. He spoiled a lot of. Uh, I guess, foodstuffs and so on and so forth. Um, he apparently attacked uh, the toter, uh, Tom Hunter, who was bringing supplies into, into one of the camps. Uh, he upset uh, Hunter's wagon, uh, destroying most of, the, most of the contents within, uh, and uh, later stalked him to uh, a camp uh, where... Apparently, Hunter said he was he was asleep at night. He uh, he had lit a candle next to his bed, and when he woke up, the candle was out. Uh, when he he saw the front door was open, and when he went out to the front door of the camp, there were footprints uh, in the frost on the step outside. So somebody had come in, blown out the candle, and was basically that that close to him. Um, and apparently, as a result of this, uh, a a man by the name of George Brown who was a trapper, uh, was hired to basically ferret this person out. Uh, he set a number of traps in the woods, but unfortunately was blinded 
uh, as a result of his uh, efforts to, to to capture this man, uh, and apparently was uh, deprived of sight for most of the rest of his life and needed help, help even just to kind of uh, walk in the woods by himself. Wow. Uh, in July of, yeah, uh, in July of 1896, um, uh, a party including two journalists, uh, Fred Erland and Frank Ristine, um, had an encounter with uh, a man who came to their camp late at night carrying only an axe and a Bible. He was by this time a very, very old man uh, and was non-communicative, but uh, was enticed into the camp in order to eat. He slept just inside the door and in the morning uh, he left. Uh, this man was not seen again uh, for another several weeks uh, when he encountered a, a party that was canoeing in, in Maine. Uh, Photographs of the man uh, taken by, I believe, Ristine and this party of canoers in Maine uh, showed that it was, in fact, the same man. And so suspicion has come um, that this was the fellow who had been uh, really for most of the last 30 years uh, attacking parties uh, all throughout uh, the Southwest Miramichi. And again, kind of doing it in a very feral way, as I talked about and kind of screaming and so on and so forth as he was doing it. And so uh, I guess lending credence to this ghost, uh, this Dungarvan Hooper uh, in the woods. So that is probably the other major version uh, of, of the story. There are of course uh, others, uh, there are other versions that kind of say that the Hooper is in fact an animal, uh, an Eastern Panther, so perhaps a mountain lion. Uh, and there were a number of sightings of mountain lions uh, between 1908 and 1923 uh, in the region, uh, as well as encounters by men like Edmund MacDonald in the 1890s, Robert Ross, Collingwood Fraser, uh, so on and so forth. So yeah, and uh, yeah, so all of the, so all, all of those different versions are certainly out there, and I'm sure there are many more as well. Uh, but yeah, those are probably two of uh, the major versions, major alternate versions of the Hooper story. Mm. Wow, wow, that is uh, quite the story and, yeah. and quite different to the story about the cook Ryan mm. getting murdered for his money belt. Um, you know, listening to you telling this version of the story, um, it made me think about when we did research this area, quite a lot of, as we mentioned, different ghost stories came up, but also other tragedies. There was a fire, a big fire in Miramichi, 1825 the Lushtuk tragedy, 1847. Um, so that made us wonder, is this area, is it a cursed area? I mean, I suppose that's hard to say. Um, <laughs> you know, living here, I don't want to say, you know, Grandma, she's cursed. <laughs> you know, Fair enough. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> cursed enough for interest, but not cursed enough that you shouldn't visit here. Yeah. Take part in our many, you know, <laughs> attractions and ghost story walks and so on and so forth um so that the 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 level of curse maybe is 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 uh what what i may take issue with um but uh, but yeah no i think there's certainly been there's certainly been a fair share of of tragedies and there's certainly been a lot of uh supernatural explanations for some of these things uh, i'm mindful of course that at the time of the great miramichi fire in october of 1825 uh, there was a version of events that this was in some way a uh, divine 
uh, I guess, punishment uh, for the rum running, the cards, or the, uh, the attacks on nature that were happening at that time. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I am mindful of the uh, Andrew Curry, I believe his name was, who in checking on a friend who lived in the back lots of the community, the Kirkpatrick family, found that their house had been burned and his friends unfortunately had passed away. Uh, he buried them and nearby their house, he found what he claimed uh, was the devil's footprint burned into uh, a stone along with a page, uh, a leaf from the Bible from the book of Leviticus, uh, which I believe was the passage that dealt with the Lord had kindled a fire against his people. He took this, this to the, uh, the Reverend James Thompson in Chatham. And apparently uh, the Reverend preached such, such a powerful sermon uh, on this text that many people felt that this was, uh, that this was kind of, you know, the uh, sign of the end times and that there was a, a great uh, uproar in the congregation. So again, this is just one example, another example along with the Hooper, of course, of, you know, the supernatural having a, uh, a powerful presence here in this region. Mm. Of course, we've got the, the the Headless Nun, another another major ghost story here in the area, and there are any number more. Now, whether that's because of a curse on the area or whether it's just because there's a greater awareness uh, of something beyond human experience happening here, I, I really couldn't say. So that's fascinating because we did read that a priest uh, was actually brought out to perform an exorcism on the forest where the Dungarvan Hooper was believed to be. Um, do you know if that's true from a historical perspective? I believe it is. Um, so Edward S. Murdoch uh, came to uh, Renews, uh, another community in the Southwest Mare Machine in 1889, uh, and was a major figure uh, in the establishment of the Catholic religion uh, on the Southwest Mare Machine and, and the building of a number of churches and the refurbishing of, of, of other churches that have been built there uh, in previous years. And uh, according to some people that I've spoken with, uh, there is an entry in the parish uh, register, I guess, uh, that does speak about uh, Father Murdoch going to uh, the Hooper Spring uh, to, again, to, to uh, bless the grave. Or again, it doesn't say performing an exorcism. It just talks about him taking that journey. Um, again, speculation uh, has been over the years uh, that again, that there was an exorcism that was performed. Perhaps the perhaps the grave was simply blessed because the grave was not blessed before. There's even versions that state that the body was exhumed and reburied uh, at the parish church. But yeah, uh, from what I from what I can understand anyway, and from what historical materials uh, I've heard but not seen, uh, it seems like it, it it was in fact uh, a historical happening that Father Murdoch did go to the grave. Fantastic. Mm. That's what we like to hear is <laughs> that these folklores are backed up by history. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we also wonder, have you yourself been to this area where the whooping can be heard? Or do you know of anyone that's had this experience? So um, I have not. Uh, but I mean, I've heard much like uh, much like Michael Whalen in 1912, who wrote uh, be the story false or true. I've told it unto you as I've heard it from the folklore all life long. I've heard this story since I was a child. Uh, and 
I have uh, spoken to some people uh, that claim to have heard it. Uh, of course, like I say, uh, Father Murdoch was in the area again in the, the, the latter portion of the 19th century into the first decades of the 20th century. So most of the people uh, who claim to have heard it, of course, are, are very, uh, uh, very senior members of the community. Uh, but yeah, it's so again, it's it, it's something that unfortunately, I guess it's an experience that's sort of passing into history. Uh, in that sense, I guess, fortunately, uh, for for Ryan's restless spirit, uh, unfortunately, for uh, folks like ourselves, who want to know more about what it was like to, uh, to have experienced this haunting. Uh, but yeah, it, it does seem to be something that's sort of passing uh, into the realm of of history rather than lived experience among those on the river today mm -hmm. so when you did uh, hear this story when you were younger were you scared as a child i i don't think so uh i don't remember being you know frightened of the idea of the dungarvan hooper it seemed like it was something it seemed like a case where uh we're one to trespass upon his territory you would hear but of course i lived you know uh in nelson a little bit further down the river um so it felt like it was not something i was likely to do uh as a child uh, as i grew older i think the story was less uh less haunting and much more intriguing and just trying to get some some details and of course as we moved into kind of plays and then kind of doing some more research I was much more unnerved by the idea of a wild man living in the woods who might who might attack you and beat you up. Thanks so much for taking the time and uh, joining us for this interview. I'm so appreciative uh, for the opportunity, and uh, yeah, would love to, to speak with you again. And as I say, I'll certainly keep you updated on all of our shows, and maybe we'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Ghost Next Door podcast. This was episode four of season one, The Dark Oven Hooper, performed by Sarah Matson. This story is a creative reimagining inspired by the hauntings in the forest outside Miramichi in New Brunswick, Canada, written by Sarah Matson. This episode features an interview with Dr. Sean McCarthy, a PhD graduate in history and the co-founder of Character Matters Miramichi a heritage-based entertainment company based in New Brunswick, Canada. You can find us on YouTube and all your favorite podcast platforms. Please support us by subscribing and following us on social media at Ghost Next Door Podcast. Our next haunting episode will be released in March 2024. Our season one finale! <laughs>